From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is a ReSound Special. You're here because you committed a crime. You broke a law that society saw fit to enact for its own protection. Ignacio Cuevas, death row number 526. I pretty much felt that uh, my life was over. All I knew was that I needed to do something. I found a couple of guys uh, and I formed a group. We made the best records that we could make. They were equal to the ones coming out of Houston, Texas. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio cells we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear on ReSound. The warden called me and he says, Quavis is scheduled for next Tuesday. And I said, I'm not going to do it. He said, yes, you are. We just couldn't believe. Here we were behind a 30-foot wall listening to ourselves on a radio station in a free world. The Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville has a long and storied history. It was the only prison in the 11 Confederate states still standing at the end of the Civil War. It was the site of one of the longest hostage-taking sieges in the U.S. in the 70s. And, on a lighter note, it was the site of the Texas Prison Rodeo for over 50 years, beginning in the 30s. Now, its claim to fame is housing the busiest execution chamber in the country. Today on ReSound, we have two remarkable, though very different, stories that center around the state pen in Huntsville. Both are about soul, the kind you dance to and the kind you pray for. Stay tuned. Prison is perhaps the last place you'd expect to find a rodeo or a recording booth. And yet, that is exactly what you'd find at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville a few decades ago. In the late 60s and early 70s, the Texas prison system chose to put a little more cash and a lot more creativity into its effort to stave off prisoner violence, boredom, and recidivism. But now that these programs are long gone, their legacy and memory are in danger of disappearing also. London-based producer Vivian Perry was not about to let that happen. Here's Prisoner Soul, presented by Gary Young. I was remanded to the state prison system on August 15, 1973. Was that a shock? You'd never been in trouble with the law before then, had you? No, never before. I did not know what to expect when I was first remanded into the county jail. It was terrible. The jail tank was designed for 56 men, but we were housing 106 men. We were wearing just rags. It was terrible. John Indo was 22 when he was arrested in Houston, Texas. He was still in college. What took you to prison, John? I was charged with murder. Uh, I was tried for capital punishment. For death row? Yes but I was given a life sentence under the 1966 penal code, which means I could have made parole in 10 years. John would actually remain in prison for 17 years. You feel helpless. 
absolutely helpless that I can do nothing about this except sit here and mildew. There were times when it was very despairing. In the 70s, the US prison system was even more brutal than it is now, with a focus on punishment rather than rehabilitation. But that was changing. A young ex-army band player was recruited to build a music program at Huntsville, Texas. Well, my name is Dr. Harley Rex. I've lived here in Huntsville, Texas about 40 years, and I was the uh, music supervisor for the entire state of Texas in the prison system. The plan was ambitious, to start a music program at the prison's wind unit from scratch. The wind unit, that was right outside of Huntsville, and that's where I designed the, the entire building of what we wanted with recording studios and practice rooms and everything else in that thing. It was a complete, you know, modern, with all the modern equipment that we could get at the time, so the prison bought everything for us. Unlike other programs, while the musicians remained behind bars, their music was released to the public. We start putting out one record here, I think it's called uh, Behind the Walls with the Outlaws. That's the name of the record, but uh, these are collector's items now. Come here, baby, let me hold you Just one more time before you go I want to try and convince you Baby, I still love you so It's stunning to think that records were made in this atmosphere, let alone released. And Texas was not unique in this regard. Prisons across the US, from California to Pennsylvania, were doing it. Reginald Haynes was in Railway Prison, New Jersey. We just couldn't believe. Here we were behind a 30-foot wall, listening to ourselves on a radio station in a free world, and knowing that hundreds of thousands of other people were hearing us at the same time. The jailhouse releases may be collector's items now, but I wanted to find out both what they meant to the musicians, the prison and the public back then, and what their legacy is today. This is all new stuff to me, the way they built this. Wow. I'm travelling back with Harley Rex to the wind unit in Texas, where he worked with prisoners on one of those groundbreaking music projects for over 20 years. We're just going into the first line of security. It seems that there's quite a few. And you'll have to show your ID at the camera. Step in front of the camera there. Show this. We're ready to roll. Do you remember the first time you ever came to win unit? What did that feel like? Well, I was anxious to come in because I came in with Dr. Beto. He was the chairman of the entire prison system. Uh -huh. And when I got in there, these inmates were lined up all over that were musicians. Mm. And my job was to interview them then. And right. I enjoyed that. We did that on every unit, 16 units. Out of 100,000 inmates, uh, I find, found about 5,000 that could play musical instruments that first week that I was here. You, you weren't scared about coming into a prison? Not at all. No, it didn't bother me at all. Had you ever been to a prison before? Yes, I've visited some. I understood the prison right. rules and regulations, but 
This is secure right now. We just walked in the front door before. So we're walking through the jail proper now and get a clear distinction of inmates and uh, wardens. Inmates all in white, jail bars uh, everywhere. John Indo was moved to the wind unit after a year inside. Before you went to prison, tell us about how you learned to play the trumpet. When did you get your first trumpet? I started playing the school band when I was in the seventh grade. So you were about 12. 12, 13 years old, and I took a liking to it, and it, it became the reason why I went to school. I almost flunked sixth grade, you know, flunked. Now in the seventh grade, I started in the band, and I was in the honor, honor roll from there on out. I wound up with a very, very large music scholarship to Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I thought I was going to be a great orchestra conductor merely for the asking, but it didn't work out that way. <laughs> was your involvement in the band, was that a big thing? Yes, it was. It certainly was. We went to band for the first half of the day and did the clerical work the second half of the day. Uh, we had band rehearsal usually from about 8 o'clock in the morning until about lunchtime around noon. And what kind of effect would that have on your, you know, on your spirit, on your psyche? A wonderful effect. It's something that I want to do, something I enjoy doing. This morning and I felt so good I thought it was a beautiful day At the same time, one and a half thousand miles away in New Jersey's railway prison, a young man named Reginald Haynes was coming to terms with his sentence. I winded up in prison for armed robbery. I pretty much felt that uh, my life was over. All I knew was that I needed to do something. And uh, singing is something that I've always loved to do. I found a couple of guys uh, and I formed a group just to pass the time. Railway had a program that allowed inmates to work on their music. Reginald and his group took part in a prison's talent competition. It would lead to great things. We audition within the morning. Everything is going to be all right. Everything. We took the show. We were the Cats Meow. The next show was when uh, we met the uh, gentleman who eventually became our manager, producer. George Kerr. Going to be right. Kerr, who produced the OJs, was a well-respected figure in the music industry. Here he is in a local radio interview in 1972. The escorts are a singing group of young inmates, all long-term offenders, in for murder, robbery, and other serious crimes. Today, though, their vocal talents were being put to use as they made a record album being produced by a Motown veteran, George Kerr of East Orange, who told me how the project began. 
Oh, well, about two years ago, I came into the prison uh, with my wife, and uh, we heard this group, uh, it was an amateur show, and uh, just knocked me off my feet. And then I just tried through the prison officials for a couple of years, and they granted me um, permission to come in. Back in Texas, former music program leader Harley Rex takes me back to the facility he created. It's now the prison's mailroom. I'm anxious to see the band hall. When you last remembered it, what was the band hall like? The band hall, it was a little brick building. This is it right here. Mm-hmm. And there it is, with a, it's a different roof now. So come on in. So, anything changed, Harley? Well, the entire building has changed. <laughs> we made the best records that we could make. They were equal to the ones coming out of Houston, Texas. In fact, we had better recording facilities here than some of the professional studios, Peacock Recordings and some of the other ones, Shotgun Recordings in Houston, Texas that were making rhythm and blues records. Our fidelity was better in here. And the inmates are the ones that did it. And then you actually, they did then go commercial, didn't they? We did, the, and then we'd send them down to Villa Platte Records in Beaumont, Texas, and they would produce about 10,000 records, the first printing. So why was it so important that their music was commercially sold? What was the, what was the importance of that? Uh, see, the music that we had on these records was written and performed by the inmates. I had a contest every year. We'd pick out the best 20 songs that the inmates would write, and those are the ones that we arranged, and we recorded those. So they were actually written, composed, we did everything ourselves. And we made professionals out of these inmates, and they were the best guys to work with. Do you know the name Sidney Poitier? Sidney Poitier. Yeah, Poitier? Yes. Okay. He was over at the prison one time, and we sat over there. The actor. The actor. He came into the prison with some of the people from Houston, Texas. They brought him up. He said he wanted to come over to the wind unit band hall, and he was fascinated. He said, this is just like the recording studios out in California that he works with, with Ray Charles and all those great Mm. musicians. And he was very impressed. Very impressed with what we were doing in the prison system. John Indo's name appears on some of the records. This was wonderful. Uh, We made a record of the 1978 band that we had that was sold Mm. commercially. I don't know how well it sold. Did it give you a sense of legitimacy or of, uh, I mean, you said this was near a professional band. Mm-hmm. And then when you when your music goes commercial, you are effectively a professional band that's just not getting paid very well, right? <laughs> that's right. Yes, uh, doing this gave me a sense of communicating and being in connection with the outside world. We are doing something worthwhile. We are participating in something that is mainstream. It's just not stone and steel as it is in the prison. And that was very helpful. You know, uh, it keeps your eyes on the outside. In this corner, we had a drum set set up with a screen and a microphone, and we recorded just the drums right over here. And the guitars were over in this side. But we would do, before every band rehearsal, we would sit out here in a circle. And they would tell their story, why they came in. But how did that make you feel, thinking, these are the people, this is my band? Well, see, I spent 10 years in the military in Washington, and I heard all kinds of stories when I was down there, of course, Mm. from the war, the veterans that were in our army band. They were in the Second World War. 
And this wasn't any different, really. It was the same type of thing. So by that stage, you were just inured to those kind of stories. You just thought, okay, well, yeah. people are people. Well. well, my theory, because I was born and raised a Lutheran mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. I had that Lutheran blood in there that you have to get out there and try to help. You know, that's what Martin Luther mm -hmm. tried to do. And You felt the ability to see beyond whatever their crime was, and you looked to them as people. Absolutely. What took you to prison, John? I was charged with murder. Murdering who? I killed my parents. It was a case of long-time abuse. Uh, I don't claim justification for what I did, of course not, but, but it, it was a case of just insidious domestic violence extended over many years. I was a college student at the time, and of course at this time the Vietnam War was raging. And uh, I was participating in anti-war demonstrations which greatly infuriated my parents. And my father was one of these guys that thought that he won World War II all by himself. And he was a very reactionary type, and this was a source of conflict, and it frequently would erupt into violence. And finally, he threatened my life. Both of them did. And. Uh, I reacted in panic for fear that I would be hurt if I didn't. Was there a time when you just despaired? You just thought, I'm not going to get through this. I mean, you got a life sentence. You could be there forever. Well, there were times when it was very despairing. But I began to realize something after I had been there for about five years and that is simply the fact that I was now in a position to view my own society as an outsider. I began to think critically about what I thought was wrong with society. Reginald Haynes in New Jersey. The thinking was um, we had just came past a riot that was the worst that had occurred in the history of, of Rawway and that it maybe was felt that if they allowed this to happen, it would show that they were open to uh, allowing prisoners to uh, do things that's going to benefit their life. And uh, the inside scuttlebutt was that we would record one album, it would just fade away. But God had another plan in mind. The problem was where to record without a bespoke studio. In Railway, producer George Kerr used the Sex Offenders Unit. And that's because the Sex Offenders Unit was the only part of the prison that had soundproof rooms. And George Kerr bought in a portable studio and the microphones, the, the, the band, everything was on wires. And we recorded in the soundproof room, and of course it was all captured on the truck. 1430 WNJR. WNJR was our world. And when we first heard, all you need is another chance. We were out walking around the yard, they had speakers on the wall, and all of a sudden, we heard us. Yard stop. All we need is another chance. 
we just couldn't believe. Here we were behind a 30-foot wall listening to ourselves on a radio station in the free world and knowing that hundreds of thousands of other people were hearing us at the same time. And I mean, it just went across the country and we didn't know George Kerr had came out of the box making deals in Japan and in Europe. It took right off. I thought about, you know, the promise of life changing, but not much. Because I was still in the jungle, and I never, ever forgot where I was for fear that I wouldn't make it out. But not everyone in a prison appreciated this shift towards nurturing prisoners' creativity, particularly when it got such a public airing. The highlight of the year in Huntsville was the prison rodeo where inmates would ride bulls, sing and perform. Now, their records were sold there too. Jim Willett was a new guard working in the system at the time. Harley and these bands were there before I came along, uh, for a, a few years anyway. But I also worked with people, other officers who had been there for 20, 25 years and all. And so they were there when it was basically, uh, let's lock them up and work them and let them sleep at night atmosphere. Uh, just thinking back, I'm sure their attitude was much like, why do they need to be up there playing in the band? I ought to be down there in their cell studying the Bible or something. You know, If they were the ones in charge, that wouldn't have been happening. You know, They, they resisted it. Right. So that must have been a weird thing for them if then every year more and more people are coming to this rodeo, more and more people are buying this stuff. And... Yeah, and, and you know, even as, a, as the old guards were out there working around the uh, rodeo and the, and the midway before the rodeo, I mean, it becomes obvious to anybody who's looking that there are these people out there who are intrigued by these inmates. And, and if for no other reason, these guys are pretty good and they're inmates and we're going to buy an album made by inmates, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, they can't help but see that. The Huntsville rodeos ended in 1987, so for many it's almost folklore. But at the time, the rodeo offered a rare opportunity for prisoners and the so-called free world to mingle. Cafe Texans, a local institution, a very down-to-earth diner on the corner of the main square that's been here for more than 70 years. And I've just come along to see how locals remember the rodeo. Well, my husband and I moved here in 1972 uh, when he came to teach at the university. And, of course, we already knew about the prison rodeo because everyone in Texas, I think, hears about it. And the thing we liked the very best was the prison bands. Various bands played. They were outstanding. And we were quite amazed at that and hoped that we would be able to see them or hear them at other places in town. And sometimes you could in those days. They would come down to the square on uh, stand on a flatbed trailer and play. And that hasn't happened in many years. Not, I'm sure some people play music there, but I don't think there's any formal music program anymore. I do remember the excitement and the music, and it just all blended into to the moment. Uh, one other thing I might add, on, on those Sundays in October, all of the church's ministers were expected to get through a little bit early so people could go home for lunch. <laughs> so going to the rodeo and seeing the prisoners in this different light, um, did that change your perception of who they were and what they did? 
It was very important from that aspect because day to day we think of us and them and their prisoners, but when you see them performing and indeed in the rodeo and <laughs> exposing themselves to all kinds of risks, and they're just people. And that's a thing that um, is very, very important to remember. And I think maybe it's hard for us when we think of all those people who are captives over there. Of course, there are reasons, but that's a whole larger concept, but they're, they're just people. Clearly, releasing these records and performing them openly provided a mutually advantageous connection with the free world, changing the way inmates viewed themselves, but also how they were perceived. For some prisoners, it restored their sense of humanity while inside. For others, it was a chance to start to shine before they got out. While prisons are now more committed to rehabilitation than they were, with budget cuts, the music programmes have mostly been axed. That sound is familiar to everybody who lives in this area, but its meaning isn't. It's the whistle that means they're counting the prisoners and making sure that everyone is spoken for. I'm at the Walls Unit at the point where John Indo was released after he'd been in prison for 17 years. And I'm waiting for John to meet Harley Rex. It's been 26 years since I've seen each other. I have no idea how that is, uh, that's going to go. Uh, I don't even know if they're going to recognise each other by sight. How are you, baby? Well, good to see you. Good to see you. You haven't changed a bit. You haven't changed. You haven't changed too much. No, I've been a greenhouse plant, you know. A uh, so greenhouse plant, yeah. <laughs> Still playing the trumpet? At well, all, I'm not playing anymore. Really. Well, I gave mine up two years ago, my yeah, saxophone. Just, uh, so how long has it been, guys? What, that I saw, John? Since you last saw each other. Well, when did you get out? What year? In 1987. Like, that'd be 26 87. years. 87? Yeah. yeah. So you've got yeah. a, an album here, and John's name's on it. It's in here. And there's a picture of the whole band, and we're just trying to find where John is. It's me, right there. Oh, oh you know, I thought perhaps that was you, right up here at the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was interesting walking up here because walked up with, with you and this is the spot where you were released right where you yes, were released after 17 old. years yes this is where you started started your life again right? basically that's right walked out of that door at about four o'clock in the evening and we drove by the parole office over there and thumbed our noses and we went out to eat what did you have much steak and ale i had a steak dinner holly we went in today back into the wind unit. First time you'd been in for quite some time. First time ever. Right. Um, how do you think it changed? And do you think that the absence of something like your music program, what kind of effect do you think that would have on inmates in there now? It's definitely for the worse. The prison system is so big that it's financially disastrous. And of course, the recidivism rate is very high. Mm-hmm. And music was an inroad into the free world and a tremendous morale builder. John, 
Did you know, I read in the paper, the Houston Chronicle, about a week ago, 70% is what comes back. Yeah. I mean, that's a large group of people mm -hmm. coming back into the system. There's such a big turnover like that. We, we lit the one candle in the darkness, and it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile to me, and I'm grateful for it. John took a number of degrees and after many years inside, now works in a mental health profession. He's married with a son. Over on the East Coast, despite a number of setbacks and management disputes, Reginald Haynes reformed his group with new members, now called the Legendary Escorts. They've been around for 20 years. We've recorded three CDs. We have performed from Boston to Anchorage, Alaska, we're still together and uh, it's uh, looking good. I really don't believe that today's prison system would allow for a escorts. This almost sounds like an oxymoron, but it's one of them situations of being at the right place at the right time in history. Yes, I was in prison, and yes, people label me an ex-prisoner, but being a prisoner is not who I am. It's who I was. Prisoner Soul was produced by Vivian Perry for Like It Is Productions and BBC Radio 4. Coming up after the break, a minister, a death chamber, and the men who crossed paths in that fateful, desperate place. The warden called a staff meeting, and he said, gentlemen, we're going to have an execution, December the 7th. And he looked at me and he said, you will be there from the time the inmate gets there until the time the man Stay with us. You're listening to a ReSound special from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi.
The same Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville that was the home of the prison rodeo in the 30s and recording studios in the 70s is currently the home of the busiest death chamber in the country. Recently, the state executed its 500th prisoner at Huntsville. For a number of years, there was a man there who you could say was on death row, but not as a prisoner. Producer Matt Holtzman introduces him to us in his story, Ministry of Presence. You might call Carol Pickett a speak-softly-but-carry-a-big-Bible kind of guy. He was chaplain of the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, for 15 years. The Walls Unit, that's what they call the prison, is the place where they execute people in Texas. And between 1982 and 1995, Pickett ministered to 95 men who were put to death there. After each one, sometime after midnight, after the witnesses had left the death chamber and the dead man's body had been carted away, Pickett would go to his house across the street, sit down, turn on his little tape recorder, and start talking. Jesse Della Rosa, death row number 713. At about 1110, Jesse made a very unique request. He said, I would like for you to have a song played for me. This will be my last request. There's a radio station in Houston, KFMK 98 on the dial, which accepts requests. I told him that I didn't know that I could do this. If I asked him what the song was, he said, well, it's a 1972 song by the Dramatics called In the Rain. I said, Jesse, how do you know that song? That's 13 years ago. You were just a little kid. He said, that's my, one of my favorite songs. I've remembered it ever since. And he asked me, please, he said, please, can you, can you get somebody to play that song. So I called the switchboard and asked the woman on duty if she would go in and get Manuela, his sister, to come out and talk on the phone. And she got on the outside phone, and I explained to her what was going on. I told her to be sure and tell the radio station they better get on the stick and do it in a hurry. Manuela seemed to be quite shaken by this. She called back at 20 minutes to 12 and stated that she was having trouble getting through to the radio station because the line was busy. I never heard from her again, but as we watched the clock, as time got closer, we were trying to see if maybe the last wish of this man was fulfilled. At 11.53, I heard the fellow on the radio say, now I want to dedicate this to Jesse. It's an old song. This is for you, Jesse. And the two guards who knew about this with me helped keep everybody away from the cell and away from the radio and quiet. Where for the next three minutes, this man listened very intently to this particular song. I never knew why it was important to him. I will never know. smiled and said, thank you. The one minute after 12, I said, Jesse, it's time to go. And we went inside. Jesse was cooperative. He lay down. His veins were good. The saline solution was flowing in both arms. The warden stepped out. And I was in the room with Jesse. And he said to 
me, will you hold my hand? I held his hand. The warden ordered it to begin. The flow was started at 12.13 a.m. And less than 10 seconds later, there was no more breath and no more movement. Carol Pickett had only been to the Walls unit once before he took the job as chaplain in 1980. It was six years earlier. He was the minister of a big Presbyterian church across town, and he got an emergency call from one of his parishioners, the prison warden. In the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, armed convicts have seized 11 hostages. The hostages include several prison system school teachers and librarians. Two of the hostages were also Pickett's parishioners. They both worked at the prison. And so he spent 11 intense days there with their families and the families of other hostages. They waited, they worried, and prayed. Carrasco later let the hostages telephone their families. Children? Yes? <laughs> I love y'all. Mother, we love you too. Don't worry, we're going to get you back. The children of Julia Stanley and Elizabeth Beseda did not get their mothers back. A hail of gunfire ended the siege in a pool of blood. Only one of the three hostage-takers survived the massacre, a prisoner named Ignacio Cuevas. When Pickett left the Walls unit after the ordeal, he never thought he'd step foot on the grounds again. But years later, the head of the Texas prison system asked him to be chaplain at the Walls unit, and Pickett accepted. At the time, he didn't know that Texas was getting ready to put the death house back in action after an 18-year hiatus. My name is, you want my real name? My real name is Carol L. Pickett. The first day that I ever found out we were going to have an execution, I had been there at the prison for two years already. I had 2,200 inmates on my unit, and I considered it a, a great ministry. We started a lot of music programs, so I had a lot of that going on. About the middle part of November, the warden called a staff meeting, and then he said, Gentlemen, we're going to have an execution, December the 7th. None of us have been a part of an execution before, and lethal injection has never been done in the world, so we're all flying blind. But he went around to every person in that room and assigned them responsibilities. And he looked at me and he said, you will be there from the time the inmate gets there until the time the man dies. He was to become, quote, mine when he reached the unit, and I was to be there all the time to handle all of his requests and needs and to communicate back and forth between the warden and other people involved. And he said, your main responsibility is to seduce his emotions so he won't fight. A couple of days later, we went through the walkthrough with nobody there. This first trip the death house was one of the most upsetting and to a certain extent terrifying experience that I'd had in the 30 years since I began preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I walked the long hall with the other men down to the death house. A door was unlocked there, a very heavy squeaking door. In cell number one, there was a Bible, a set of checkers, and a checkerboard. At the far end, really to the right as you enter, there's a gray door, a heavy door that is locked. When that door is open, you immediately see 
a hospital-type gurney. A volunteer that uh, was a big, strong man came in, and then uh, five guards would put on nine straps. Then the guard, the warden would check them all to be sure they're tight. Okay, and then we'd go back and do it again. Then we'd go back and do it again. The volunteer, he began to fight. And he kicked and he kicked, and it took a long time to wrestle that man down. There was bloodshed. I really wondered, how do I get out of this responsibility? How do I feel about the whole issue of capital punishment? Oh, yes, I had argued for it. But it was different then, because then I was a minister of a church in which two women had been killed, had been murdered, and I was very much in favor of it. But now I was to watch it, and I was to learn to know the man and to be with him as a chaplain. And for several weeks, I began to pray for strength to do what needs to be done, and this is what God wanted me to do. The issue was finally resolved. I decided to look at this as an individual who was going to die, period. The manner and method of death was not important. I could not judge him or be critical of him and I determined not to be overly concerned about what brought him to the place of his death. Charlie Brooks would be the first man ever to be executed by lethal injection. Almost six years earlier, Brooks had taken a car mechanic to a motel room, tied him up with coat hangers, gagged him with adhesive tape, and shot him in the head. The authorities brought Brooks to the death house early in the morning to avoid the crowd that would build up outside the prison later on in the day. He was to be put to death at midnight. December the 6th. I didn't sleep December the 4th and 5th. I arrived at the unit at 6 a.m. I didn't know Charlie Brooks. And he walked in, you know, and he walked straight up to me, and he called me by name, which shocked me. The guards came and took his shackles off and his chains off and his handcuffs off and stripped him of all of his clothes. And he was just a little man. They stripped him and they did a search, you know, searched every cavity. Boy, they were thorough. And then he walked over to the cell. He did ask that we take his Dr. Peppers out that he'd been saving. And we put them in our refrigerator and offered them to be cold when he needed them. I thought there would be anger, nervousness, anxiety. But he was just patient and kind and gentle, and he was not afraid to talk to a Christian chaplain, even though he was a Muslim. We talked, and we talked, and we talked. The time came. I went to the cell, told Charlie it was time to go, and we stepped out. Charlie Brooks behind me, he walked straight inside. They strapped him down, and he didn't say a word. He was lying there on the table, just waiting. And Warden Persky said, we are ready. At 12.09, the first injection of lethal medication began flowing to the arms of Charlie Brooks, Jr. He was very, very still. I watched his eyes. There seemed to be moisture there but it never reached his cheeks. He had agreed that as soon as he felt the effects of this 
injection that death was coming. He was going to say the words of admission to paradise. Allah U Akbar, which means Allah the Most Great. He opened his mouth and a sound came from his lips. Ah, he never got the word out. And as he ended with what appeared to be the second syllable of the word, his lips went shut. He never moved again. I got home uh, after five o'clock in the morning. I did not go to sleep. I did not go to sleep. I replayed it and replayed it and replayed it in my head. You know, I went back as a, being a minister of concern for a human being, not being on the judgment committee, not being on the jury, not having anything to do with sentencing him to death. Did I do my ministry? I got out my old tape recorder and sat on the floor, and I just started talking. Charlie Brooks, the first person I ever saw executed, died calmly, peacefully, talking to Allah. I felt his pulse just stop, just stop, and uh, mine did too. Mine did every time, because you never know what's going to happen, never. He began walking up, up and down in his cell, striking his left hand with his right hand, right fist and the left hand, right fist and the left hand. He began to sing his first song. He sang a solo entitled, Lord, It's Gonna Rain. And the man had a great voice, one of the best singing voices of anybody that I'd ever heard. And he burst loose with this great voice and sang, where well, it went up and down the the seven cells and his entire body trembled and quaked and moved from the top of his head to his feet. The eight very strong leather straps began to move. John was scared. The family began hysterically to curse. We were called dirty names, murderers. The body was removed. The place was cleaned up. Preparations were made for the coming of the second one for that night. We talked about his religion, which was a type of voodoo, Buddhist, Islamic, Hare Krishna, all rolled into one. You see, there are many people who believe that the soul leaves the body through the soft spot in the skull. They said, some of us believe that when the eyes roll back in the head, that's a sign that the eyes are watching the soul leave. And I want you to watch and see if you can see my soul, if I have a soul. I want you to see where it comes out. This form was handed to him through the bars. With no problem whatsoever, he took my pen and signed it with his right hand. The same right hand that the lawyers had argued earlier that day before a federal judge that was paralyzed and unable to do anything. And ate his vanilla ice cream as I was discussing the procedure of the insertion of the needles and so forth. And, and so after that, 
he began to want to go to sleep. He felt like he shouldn't go to sleep because, as he said, one of these minutes I may wake up and then I'll be sleeping a long time. One of the questions that he asked was, was it true that Montoya's stomach exploded and the organs came out? I don't know where he got that idea, but certainly that was not true. It said that he ate six scrambled eggs with cheese, which was true. That he had seven pieces of buttered toast. He only ate five. The papers stated that he ate 15 pieces of bacon. Actually, he only ate two pieces of sausage. The papers said he ate a bowl of white grits with butter. They were yellow grits. The papers stated that he ate three hash browns. Actually, he was sent one full dinner plate of hash browns. The newsman reported that he drank orange juice, but it was grape juice. So out of the six items they reported, they got five of them completely wrong. But that was normal, and that had been going on forever, as long as I've been working there. You can read anything on a paper, a newspaper, about a person's crime and what they've done and everything else, but when you get to, to meet them at 6 o'clock in the morning, and then you're going to be there till midnight, and you get to know their families, you get to know more about their life, and uh, basically to listen. And I call it the Ministry of Presence. Even early on, Carol Pickett had begun to question the death penalty, but he continued to believe in his calling as minister to those who were going to be put to death. Even that belief was tested in 1991, when the man who'd killed two of Pickett's parishioners in the 1974 Huntsville prison siege came back to the scene of his crime. This time, he was in shackles. Ignacio Cuevas, death row number 526, May the 22nd and May the 23rd, 1991. How in the world could a man be a minister to a woman like Judy Stanley who was blown apart with five bullet holes in the back, be with her family during all the problems, conduct a funeral service, and then 17 years later be asked to be the minister to the man who was convicted of killing her. The warden called me and he says, Quavis is scheduled for next Tuesday. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I said, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to pull the trick. I'm not going to do it. He said, yes, you are. When I first saw Quavis come into the door, I was surprised at his size. For all the pictures and ugly memories, this was not a man that looked like he had been depicted. He looked at me and nodded in my direction as if he knew who I was. And since this had occurred many times before, I accepted it as something routine. I knew that I was going to have to to guard very carefully against seeing or hearing or feeling things were not there. Now, Ignacio Cuevas was number 39. And number 33 was Carlos de Luna, who was, I am totally convinced he was innocent. And it's two years later, uh, 1991, by that time I had reached the point where the death penalty was, was wrong. He talked about a passage when Jesus talks about when people should be caring for others. 
when we should, all people should be pastors to people in need. He said, you are a pastor to me because you came to me in prison. The Lord Jesus Christ also said that we're supposed to welcome strangers and take care of those people that we do not know. He said, I was a stranger to you. You never knew me. And he said, the Lord Jesus Christ said that we are to bring water to those who are thirsty. And he said, you have been bringing coffee to me all day long. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I was naked and you gave me clothes. You have given me clothes to die in. You have been my pastor. I asked him, did he want to pray? He said, his prayers were finished and he had nothing left to say. That God understood that he had confessed every day and that he was ready to go to a better place. If Ignatius Doquavis were coming up for execution now, I would not support killing him because I heard it from the victim's families. The death of Ignacio Cuevas accomplished nothing, nothing. And so much of the executions as, as accomplishing nothing for either family. So we're all victims, you might say. They got this horrible wave of nausea. And for perhaps five minutes sitting there, I just soon drowned myself in the shower rather than go what was going to be take place in the next hour. The time came. We walked into the chamber. The little small man jumped up on the table by himself. He was laid down. He was much too small for the length of the gurney, so we had to slide further down. The witnesses came in. He turned and looked at the people, and he said, beautiful faces. And then he whispered, I'm innocent. I thought, here you told me not half an hour ago, you helped murder G. Stanton. And he said, okay, warden, roll him. He gasped, just a little, more like a snore. He died very quickly. That may not be justice, but some people would say that had to end that way. But the problem is, and a lot of our hearts and minds and thoughts, it's never going to end. The system stinks, and it's not fair. I felt like if God put me there, he, he'll tell me when to leave. He didn't tell me to leave. I had been visiting those inmates over in our hospital, you know, and I could minister to them. You know, I'm not in favor of cancer, but I'm going to stay with the convict when he dies, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. So to my mind, I felt like that this was another, another way that people are going to end their life. And I may be opposed to that, but I am not going to let them die alone. I noticed through the plate glass window. As the years went by, the number of executions in Texas increased. And Carol Pickett's ministry of presence started to take a toll on him. 
And so, on August 15, 1995, he ministered to his last condemned man, Vernon Sadie White. And Vernon turned his head, looked at me, and without saying out loud, but with his lips, he said, thank you, thank you. There were 98 executions in the 15 years Carol Pickett was chaplain at the Walls Unit. In the following 15 years, there were 348. The original death row could only handle a maximum of seven condemned men. 308 men now await execution in Texas. But California leads the nation with 724 inmates on death row as of April of this year. 95 executions, 95 killings by the state in the name of the state. Some pretty bad guys, some fellows who had been completely changed, some who didn't even know where they were, and many, many who did not fulfill the law as it states. And one of the questions that must be asked, does he constitute a future danger? Most of the men I was with, I would have taken home with me. I'm not been afraid. Ministry of Presence was produced by Matt Holtzman for Unfictional on KCRW. A brief update to this story. In the fall of 2012, Proposition 34, a bill that would have ended the death penalty in Texas, failed. This Resound Special is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. Support for Resound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors, including Kevin and Wanda McDonald. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound, radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.